Wesley Fremonti's point, and I'm so excited about this next uh, segment. I've known Ken Libertoff for, oh, 25 years. From the basketball gyms of Montpelier to the Vermont legislature and elsewhere. And now, Ken of East Montpelier is out with a first book, a collection of stories about the rich life he has lived. The book is out today and uh, from Montpelier-based Rootstock Publishing. And he joins us now. Ken Libertoff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate the uh, opportunity. Okay, so... This book is a is a collection of snapshots from your life, and uh, I, I, as you know, you and I are both basketball fanatics, and uh, you are not an original Vermonter. You hail from places like Bensonhurst and Queens, and and where where uh, you write about uh, basketball in the playgrounds there, which you know. And then when I heard about uh, that you had written about Ebbets Field, I had to run out and get the book. So tell us what what led you to the book, and um, you know, tell us what it was like to write it. Well, Kevin, I, I would certainly start by saying this was not a planned activity in my life. It was almost a, a random accident that at age 74, um, I happened upon an opportunity to uh, sit in on a writing class. As I remember, uh, a Gata graduate student uh, led the group, and it was part of his training. And I'm not sure, it was more of just a lark that I signed up to join the group. It was uh, at the Kellogg Library. And I had... uh, Absolutely uh, no plan, no design, and, and uh, no, no background really in writing. So I think it's fair to say that this was one of those uh, amazing uh, accidents uh, that turned out well. Uh, I started writing uh, in response to prompts, which is the process in writing groups where the leader will give you some word um, very happily. You know, it it could be basketball. It could be cold weather. It could be bagels. And you have to quickly weave a story around the prompts. So uh, this is not uh, necessarily the book, um, which is called Snapshots of a Life, is truly snapshots there is no sequential approach to this, which many people would have in what might be uh, considered um, a memoir. Um, it's not like uh, necessarily I was born uh, in Brooklyn on January 16th, and then it progresses each year. This is truly uh, a random collection of experiences and observations uh, that I've had uh, over my life, uh, written really in the last four or five years. And um, what makes it uh, in some ways humbling and also uplifting is because I had very little plan or background, uh, I can't necessarily answer the question of, you know, well, you must have set out to do this at a certain point 
that wasn't the case. And I'd like to think that perhaps it makes it slightly unique and maybe even a better read. Now, tell us, let's go to some of those snapshots, Ken. Uh, take us to the bleachers at Ebbets Field, if you would, because there's a lot of Vermonters who who hail from Brooklyn and uh, and and remember those days. What was tell it? Take us back to Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. Sure. This this is going back now to uh, the 1950s. And in many ways, Ebbets Field was uh, one of the jewels of Brooklyn back then. Uh, as people may know, Brooklyn has really had an amazing renewal, as often happens in cities. And now uh, it's a great attraction, including for many younger Vermonters who have migrated to Brooklyn. But back then, it was a very blue-collar uh, community or borough. And the Brooklyn Dodgers were much beloved. Unfortunately, if you were a Brooklyn Dodger fan, uh, one of the, the things that you experienced was suffering because the team, while uh, often uh, proficient, uh, really were not able to beat the greatly hated New York Yankees. Um, and uh, it was uh, truly... Uh, Ebbets Field was a drawing card that brought in people from, you know, all over the borough, if not from the city. And the loyalty to the Dodgers was enormous. And as I unfold a story from my youth, um, my grandmother lived in Brooklyn and um, in very modest circumstances. And to be honest, we didn't have that much in common except for great devotion to the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, much to my pleasure, when I was uh, 9, 10, or 11, my grandmother would frequently take me over to Ebbets Field. We actually did take kind of a trolley car to, to the ballpark. And um, it was a beautiful grass stadium in a, a rather unattractive borough. And um, the crowds were enormous. And during my youth, uh, we had such incredible ball players as Jackie Robinson and Duke Snyder and Gil Hodges, much beloved, much, much beloved by Brooklyn Dodger fans. And uh, as occasion of the story, I happened to um, really enjoy the fact that you could get in on Ladies' Day for, for 75 cents um, on a Saturday afternoon, and it was a glorious, glorious uh, celebration. And the team actually uh, was very strong, as, as was the, the, uh, the backing of the fans. One of the, one of the elements of the story uh, which I think is delightful, is that a star pitcher for, um, for the Philadelphia Phillies, a rival club, was a fellow named Robin Roberts. And it turned out that he was somewhat of a Dodger killer. You know, he would come into Ebbets Field, and he often pitched on Saturday for some reason. So my grandmother and I took a great dislike to him because <laughs> he had a, a great fastball. And uh, in short... 
um, my grandmother and I would loathe the guy. So uh, imagine my surprise when I got settled in Montpelier and found out that we were going to have a college baseball team here. It was sort of college age baseball team, the Mountaineers over at the rec field. And of all things, uh, Robin Roberts became kind of a, a legendary spokesperson for the team. And the reason is he started his career in Montpelier, which is truly amazing as, he, as a really young guy. And yeah. without uh, belaboring the story, because I think people would enjoy uh, reading the book, I had an opportunity to meet Robin Rogers about 55, 60 years after the, the Ebbetsfield experience and had to admit as I shook his hand and he was a senior gent, I've hated you for decades, but you seem like a really nice guy. And we ended up sitting and talking for a couple of hours in the dugout during a game. Uh, so sports, sports is certainly one of the uh, themes of the book because it's been important in my life. And as Kevin has mentioned, um, you know, he may be pretty quick on his feet as a leading interviewer, you know, as a facilitator of a very uh, well-done show. He was also very quick on his feet on the basketball court 20, 30 years ago, as I remember. <laughs> Oh, my heavens. Well, tell us, okay. uh, Ken, you famously, at least on the on the floor of the Montpelier Rec Center, were a uh, a basketball player at the at the University of Connecticut, uh, at a big time program. And but you you built your love of basketball in New York City. Tell us about that. Well, the, the fact of the matter is uh, basketball was king in New York City uh, back in the, certainly in the 50s. And many great players came from public schools uh, and went on to uh, illustrious careers. In my neighborhood, there was one particular player who I was devoted to. He was quite a bit older than I was. But his name was Dick McGuire. And uh, while I don't want to bore people, uh, particularly if you're not a sports fan like Kevin and I, um, he went by the uh, name of Tricky Dick McGuire because he was very much like Bob Cousy. Most people have heard about Bob Cousy. He, he uh, dribbled behind his back. He was a great playmaker. Uh, he could score. And... Um, the Maguires uh, lived uh, just uh, 20 blocks from me. So when I was a kid, I would occasionally go down to uh, 90th Street in Rockaway, and I would rebound the ball and pass it to Dick Maguire so he could sharpen his, his play out of schoolyard basketball. This is way before there were summer teams and traveling teams there was basketball on city courts from morning, noon, and night. And well, Ken, uh, it brings me, back many me, memories. Let me test, Ken, let me test something out on you. As a, as a, a, a I'm from the Jersey Shore, so I, I, I'm the last guy to lecture anybody about the uh, basketball scene in New York City. But um, I remember hearing once that it was 
the guys from Harlem uh, were big, strong drivers to the basket, and the guys from Brooklyn uh, made it in college and the NBA a little easier because they learned to shoot outside in Brooklyn, whereas the Harlem guys did not. Is there any truth to that? Well, I don't necessarily uh, subscribe to that. I think there was a different style of play for sure. Um, But on the other hand, um, as we know, um, there's a certain uh, democracy on on a basketball court, basketball team. You have five players at any one time trying to coordinate activities. And I think there was a full range of of skills. I do have to to say, and and here's where I um, will divert the conversation slightly, I wouldn't want to mislead uh, listeners to think this is a sports book. There are some, I think, engaging sports stories, but it 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 ranges from um, early family life to successes and failures in career and in personal life, and certainly a lot of my travels, uh, which brought me to uh, do consulting work in Africa which is highlighted in some of the stories. So and even you, though I, and, and, we could pursue the conversation, I certainly don't want to leave people with the impression this is a sports book. Snapshots of a Life is out today. And if you want to uh, listen to Ken read from the book and talk to him about the book, uh, it's about his life. Um, and it's published by Montpelier-based Rootstock Publishing. You can join, You can go to a book launch event called Books and Bagels. It's scheduled for 10.30 a.m. this Saturday, uh, 10.30 a.m. at the Christ Episcopal Church in Montpelier, and they'll have books for sale. Um, Ken, you, have, you were the longtime executive director of the Vermont Association for Mental Health, and I remember you often walking away from the statehouse while the rest of us were walking in, having... Uh, made your various political deals on behalf of uh, the mental health community uh, with Governor Howard Dean and others. You always seem to be two or three steps ahead of the rest of us. And I assume that this book has stories about your mental health work. Tell us about that. Well, I'll simply say that I was a very fortunate person because I ended up directing the Vermont Association for Mental Health for three decades. And um, anyone who has had experience in and around the state house knows that um, things can get a little rough and contested um, any day, any week, any month, or, or any session. And I'm happy to say that um, during my tenure, uh, I was part of some efforts uh, that were uh, successful, most notably a major, major change in the way uh, health insurance is designed for mental health and substance abuse conditions. The bill was signed in 1997, and for the first time, it basically equalized the coverage and uh, payment for mental health and substance abuse conditions as uh, and equalized it to all other healthcare conditions. Up until that time, it was often a twenty-five thousand dollar cap, which uh, 
was so inadequate that it's hard to believe that it, this cap continued until 1997. So um, in some ways, that uh, success became um, something that almost every other state wanted to try to emulate, which enabled me to be in the position of providing guidance, counsel, consultation, and uh, presentations uh, to states uh, around the country. And uh, the power of this piece of legislation, which to some degree has been finally replicated in federal standards, although not as strongly as I would like, uh, enabled me to be uh, offered a consultant's role in the country of South Africa and to bring this, the message of equality of healthcare coverage. So there, there are just uh, endless possibilities. The book only captures a few of the issues, but needless to say, to uh, enjoy a particular job for 30 years is, uh, you know, really rewarding. And as Kevin knows, because of his background, um, you know, occasionally I would say, all I really do is sit in the cafeteria and eat free donuts and drink coffee. What, this is such, just such an easy job. Of course, it wasn't. And that's not all I did. But um, over 30 years, you get to meet a lot of extraordinary people. And I'd like to think that uh, we had positive impact uh, in expanding treatment, redefining uh, substance abuse conditions, and in uh, general focus on these issues. Can you, in your 30 years in Montpelier in the mental health field and the sort of in and around politics, you've seen a lot of politicians um, come and go. Tell us what, I guess the question is, who's the most impressive governor that, uh, that you ever worked with? Well, Kevin, you're, you're asking, uh, you know, a very difficult question. And um, <laughs> I don't know if I take pride um, in saying that in some ways um, I had at times difficult relationships with every governor um, that I worked with as an advocate going back to Dick Snelling. Um, probably uh, the person that I had the, you know, considerable respect for was Governor Howard Dean. And part of the reason is, and this is, this is sort of the beauty of Vermont and the beauty of Vermont being a small community. When I first started as a advocate, in 1981 or so, um, I didn't know very much about the political process or the state house, and I just happened to run into a young, snappy fella sitting next to me in the cafeteria, and we got to talking. And it turned out he was really interested in some mental health issues that I was raising, and he introduced himself. Uh, as a physician. And um, it was Howard Dean, who was a member, I think, of the House of Representatives from Chittenden County. 
And over a period of years, um, Howard was on my board and uh, we got to know each other. As a matter of fact, uh, I remember years and years ago, Howard was a very dedicated, hardworking legislator, but he also took seriously his commitment to be on the board of the nonprofit Mental Health Association. And he occasionally brought his infant son to the meeting, and, uh, which was up in my office. And I, you know, was very appreciative of that level of dedication. As people may know, uh, Governor Dean's wife is also a doctor. And we had a good meeting and left. And when I came in the next morning, there was a particular bad smell in my office room at 43 State Street, Montpelier. And when I went over to the garbage pail, I realized that Howard had disposed of a diaper and left it in my garbage can. Not as a joke. I think he was just doing what he had to do, but he forgot to tell me. So, you know, we get to interact with people on all different levels. Um, you know, I have to say, in his own way, Dick Snelling, uh, who was uh, much more conservative uh, than many, uh, did some really good work in making sure that he was outspoken in support of the mentally ill up in Chittenden County when there were discriminatory practices about opening programs. Anyway, we could go on and on. I think that uh, without uh, without doubt, it's been a pleasure. And and uh, you know, as an advocate, one is not to simply be a friend or a lackey or a yes person. It's to push and question. And in, in terms of my work, was to try to expand and improve. Uh, support for mental health services, which is not always um, the desire of governors, um, you know, including, you know, Jim Douglas and our present governor, there's always yeah. pushback. And I'm proud well, to say that uh, we we did make gains in, in many areas. Well, you can read all about it uh, in Snapshots of a Life by Ken Libertoff, uh, who is our guest, and he will be at the Bear Pond Books uh, uh, reading event on Saturday at 1030, Books and Bagels at the Christ Episcopal Church in Montpelier. Uh, everybody turn out and join. You, you'll be able to hear Ken talk about his life uh, growing up in Brooklyn and uh, experiences everywhere in the world and ending up in Montpelier. Ken, best of luck with the book, and thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll see you down the road. See you, Kevin. Appreciate it. We'll be holding one bagel for you. Okay. Thank you. Ken Libertoff. Uh, that'll be a great event. Uh, you should go to that. Christ Episcopal Church, Montpelier, Saturday, 1030. Go to Bohemian Bakery and get a Danish and a coffee and then go over to the bookstore. I mean, to the church. I'm Kevin Ellis. We're going to come back with Matt Dickinson of Middlebury College. We're going to talk Trump and politics after this. Uh, I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We are back. And uh, with uh, bated breath, we're going to talk politics for the next half hour. And we are joined by Professor Matthew Dickinson, a professor of of political science at Middlebury College. And the reason we have him is because we need to talk about the Iowa caucus the upcoming uh, New Hampshire primary, and all things uh, 
politics in the United States. Professor Dickinson, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Okay. So Donald Trump has uh, done what we knew had already happened, but it seems to me that his win in in the Iowa caucuses means that he has uh, strengthened his his already iron grip on the uh, nation's Republican Party. Does that make sense to you? Well, he hasn't weakened it, that's for sure. I mean, the results in Iowa were a resounding victory, but Iowa is Iowa. It's uh, You don't need to win Iowa to get the nomination, and losing Iowa doesn't prevent you from getting the nomination. So it's a peculiar state. Uh, remember, it's a caucus state. It's low turnout. Um, and so, yes, he has a strong source of support among the Republican base. Uh, the question is whether that's going to be enough to – vault him into the presidency. Um, t- t- can you explain that for us a little bit more? Uh, so Iowa is a caucus state where people show up to local gymnasium, uh, school gymnasiums and literally walk across the gym to the to the side of the candidate that they want versus and versus the New Hampshire primary. Now, uh, delegates were awarded out of the Iowa caucus. So can you explain how that works in Iowa? Sure. Um, the Republican caucus is slightly different than the Democratic uh, caucus in Iowa, but both are um, processes in which the uh, in Iowa there were 40 delegates at stake, and those delegates are apportioned roughly in, um, based on the percentage of the popular support you get. Um, but the difference between a caucus and what we're going to see in New Hampshire is a caucus is, requires some intensive participation. It's usually a two- to three-hour commitment. So not everybody can do that, particularly when you have sub-freezing weather, as they did in Iowa. So participation tends to be lower, and it tends to be restricted among the really partisan individuals who are not only committed to a candidate, but passionate enough to turn out for them. Um, and so in a caucus, as you say, there's 99 counties, over 1,000 precincts. In each of those precincts, um, individuals show up to the local schoolhouse, um, as you said, a town hall, something then um, usually there's a brief, brief um, surrogate uh, presentation on behalf of a candidate. And then in the Republican caucus, you actually vote um, on a paper ballot. The Democratic one is often um, you have an initial, as you said, walking to a portion of the room. And then there may be a second reallocation based on that. But essentially, the point of the caucus is it's much more intimate. It's much more intensive in terms of your time commitment. And so it attracts a slightly different clientele, for want of a better word, a voter base than you're going to see in New Hampshire. Okay. And uh, Trump won the Iowa caucus, uh, and and then Ron DeSantis came in second, and Nikki Haley came in third, and yet she takes to the microphone and calls it a two-person race. Can you explain to us uh, the politics and and the PR coming out of the Iowa caucus, the positioning? Well, the essential point she is trying to make is that her primary uh, competitor for the uh, position of alternative to Trump is Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor. And DeSantis uh, poured everything but the kitchen sink into Iowa. He visited all 99 counties there, the full Grassley, it's called, uh, in reference to Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. Uh, He poured a ton of money in there. Um, He um, made 
three times as many campaign visits as did Nikki Haley, and yet she came within a couple of percentage points of beating him out for second place. And so coming out of Iowa, she wants to create the narrative that if DeSantis cannot win in this solidly red state, one in which the type of election, a caucus, typically favors the more ideologically extreme individual, he's not going to win in New Hampshire, uh, which is a, a much more moderate state, which allows independents to vote. And so heading into New Hampshire for next Tuesday, it's a two-person race. That's the argument she's trying to make. Obviously, DeSantis uh, begs to differ. Um, he suggests, in fact, he finished second. So how can Haley say this is a two-person race excluding him? And after New Hampshire, he anticipates doing very well in the more conservative states in the South that come after. So part of what you're seeing here, um, Kevin, is an effort by both candidates to shape the media narrative in a way that's going to advantage them. Uh, Do you think any of this matters, given the hold that Trump has on the party? Well, I don't dismiss it. Um, As you, I think, are correctly intimating, Donald Trump is in a strong position. I would not bet my children's college tuition on someone other than Trump becoming the Republican nominee. Having said that, uh, you still have to vote. You have to win the delegates. And I would say that Haley and, to a certain extent, DeSantis have about seven weeks to make the case that uh, it's not an inevitable coronation process here, but in fact an actual competition between Trump and either Haley or DeSantis for that nomination. they got to thread the needle. Well, let's be clear. Um, it's an uphill climb, but at this point I wouldn't say it's an impossible scenario. I just think it's highly unlikely. And and in that scenario, Professor, is, is baked uh, – I mean, just reading the paper this morning, I mean, uh, the, the E. Jean Carroll court case, the defamation lawsuits, the, the business uh, lawsuits, the criminal indictments, uh, you know, Trump is, talk about threading the needle, he's in one courthouse, then he walks over to another courthouse, and then he's going to a, a, a rally. Um, at some point, do you think, I mean, I know we haven't seen this before, so you can't predict, but... It, it begins to weigh on, on voters' minds and not to mention the psyche of the candidate himself. What, give us your best sort of scenario or, or prediction. How does this – what happens? What plays out in the next uh, few weeks and months? Well, you're right. Trump is um, unique in the sense that he goes from Iowa to a New York courthouse where all the other candidates are going either to South Carolina or New Hampshire. We've never seen that before. So far, however, the four cases that he's dealing with, um, the initial court proceedings have not only not hurt him among Republican voters, but you can make the argument that they've actually increased his support. And he is using those court cases as evidence that the deep state is out to get him and that these are trumped up political charges. Uh, So I am, if you are somebody hoping that the legal problems are going to bring Trump's candidacy down, I don't think that's going to happen in the primary. Now, assuming he's the nominee, and again, we're making um, certain projections here that may not come true, 
I do think it is quite possible it's going to hurt him in the general election. Now, keep in mind, Nikki Haley is implicitly making the point in her advertising that you've seen here that we don't want four more years of this legally challenged candidate uh, running the country. So she is trying to make it an issue in a sort of a subtle way, but so far it doesn't seem to be gaining much traction. Uh, I wonder if we could go back to New Hampshire and, and tell the, the listeners what what we're in for. What what should be we be looking for in the New Hampshire primary that's coming up next week, I believe? No, it's, well, it's on Tuesday. Unlike Iowa, this is a more traditional voting mechanism. You go into your voting place and you cast the secret ballot and all the votes are counted up. And there's roughly 20 plus delegates at stake here. So, again, like Iowa, the impact of New Hampshire is not on the number of delegates so much as on the impact it has on um, narrowing the field, winnowing candidates, as we saw happen in Iowa, but also changing the narrative about who's viable. So if you're Nikki Haley, the advantage you have in uh, New Hampshire as opposed to Iowa is it's what's called an open primary. So independents, of whom there are a lot in New Hampshire, can vote in the Republican primary. Uh, and there is no Democratic primary, substantially uh, speaking, because Biden is not on the ballot there. There is a, a Dean Phillips running. So that means a lot of independents who might in the past have thought about voting in that Democratic primary, they don't have that. Uh, and so I expect turnout to be historically higher than average uh, in a way that if enough independents um, vote, and that is – Nikki Haley's meal ticket, those moderate independent voters, she has a puncher's chance here. Um, she's down about uh, 12 percentage points in the polls. That's a lot. Um, but Chris Christie, most of those polls included him. He was drawing about 12 percent. He's dropped out. Uh, a lot of his support, I suspect, will gravitate to Haley. So this is really crucial. If you want to make the best case scenario for a Republican defeating Donald Trump, whether it's DeSantis or Haley, but particularly Haley, she has to do well in New Hampshire. And by well, she can't finish a distant second the way she did in Iowa. She has to beat him or at least uh, come home in a virtual tie. So New Hampshire looms large here. Professor, uh, Governor Sununu over in New Hampshire, uh, I, I actually don't know if he's endorsed or who he has endorsed, but I'm wondering whether that endorsement matters. He has um, gone all in with um, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Uh, he's been okay. campaigning around the state with Haley, uh, and it does matter. Um, endorsements matter in the nominating phase more than in a general election because for a lot of New Hampshire voters, they are just getting to know who Nikki Haley is, or for that matter, uh, Ron DeSantis. Now, they know who Trump is. And so one of the ways you try to figure out, um, do I like what this candidate stands for, is, well, who else is supporting them? And do I know that endorser? And Sununu is a very popular governor. Uh, so his endorsement matters. Now, um, it, it's not going to win handedly uh, we saw key influential members of the Iowa political establishment endorse Ron DeSantis, uh, including a former governor, a very popular governor there. It wasn't enough to get him to win. Um, but it certainly doesn't hurt to have somebody with Sununu's stature and popularity 
backing you, and not only backing you, but standing on the stage with you, which Sununu has been doing, introducing Nikki Haley to voters. So that's a big endorsement. I wonder if you could put on a, a little bit of a, a historian's hat here. Um, in 1988, as a young reporter in Washington, I watched as Joe Biden was drummed out of that presidential race for plagiarizing some lines and speeches. And Gary Hart was drummed out uh, in, in seemingly in 24 hours for spending an evening with a woman, not his wife, uh, which he still denies to this day. Um, they were out of the race in a flash. And yet Trump, with all of his behavior, uh, has remade the world of what is acceptable to in, in the media and to voters. Have you ever seen anything like this? I have never seen, um, and Trump says it himself with the famous remark about, I could shoot someone in Fifth Avenue and not lose any votes. Have you ever seen anything like this? I have not. Uh, it's a reflection of the how much politics have changed since the era of Biden's plagiarism charge and Gary Hart's uh, infidelity, uh, alleged so. Um, it, we are just in a new era in which, particularly among Republicans, there's deep distrust of our governing institutions. Um, and that's reflected not just in um, distrust of the two major parties, but also major institutions like the media. Um, and you saw, for instance, not just Trump, who has made a living out of attacking the media. Um, and if you go to his rallies, and I went to a lot of them uh, in 2016, uh, he made no bones about who the enemies were. And he would often point to the media in the back of the room and say, those guys aren't going to report honestly what is happening here and how big my support is. And his reporters, his supporters would just roar in approval. Um, but it's also the scientific establishment. Expertise is on trial here. You think about a lot of the people's dissatisfaction with um, COVID, the handling of COVID and shutting down schools. So there's just uh, something that Trump uh, has both tapped into, but I think has accentuated, which is a deep distrust of uh, expertise and political establishments. And, you know, it's captured in that notion of the deep state. And a lot of these criminal trials are viewed by his strongest supporters as um, politically motivated efforts just to get him off the ballot uh, and not really rooted in any genuine uh, civil um, uh, efforts to, to break the law. And do you and let's switch to President Biden for a second. How do you explain his low popularity? I mean, on paper, at least things seem to be going in the right direction with the economy and some of the things that are passing Congress uh, over, you know, since he's been in office. And yet he remains stubbornly unpopular. Have you seen that before? Well, in recent years, uh, there's been uh, increasing tendency as the parties have become more ideologically homogenous. So when you think about Kevin back in when you're talking about in the the 80s with Gary Hart or Joe Biden, you had conservative Democrats, you had liberal Republicans, but those are dying. And so the Democratic Party is entirely um, dominated, at least at the national level, by liberals and the Republican Party by conservatives. And that has um, filtered down to voters' choices. They don't seem to be reacting to things like the economy 
um, outside of their own partisan lens. So, you know, once opinions get baked in, they don't seem to move very much. And Joe Biden's popularity began dropping after the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. And uh, it's true, inflation is getting better. But for Joe and Jane Sixpack, when they go to the store and buy a loaf of bread and a gallon of milk, it's still more than it was a year ago. Uh, and so there's a combination of factors, I think, that's hurting Biden here. And certainly his age um, is one of them. But I think you are right. Normally, a president who has collaborated as well as he has with Congress in terms of passing major legislation, the infrastructure bill, Build Back Better bill, um, you'd think they'd be doing a little bit better in the polling. It just hasn't happened yet. His approval yeah, ratings are historically quite low at about 40 percent approval if he heads into the November election and his approval rating is still at 40%, he is going to be in uh, deep trouble, historically speaking. Presidents with approval ratings in the low 40s do not win re-election. Okay, so, let, so let's ask the last question in the two minutes that we have left. Um, so you, you're just sketching a scenario of an unpopular incumbent president uh, possibly losing the election to a man who is under criminal indictment and could be convicted of federal crimes uh, before, during, and after the election, right? That is right. Uh, and that would be unprecedented. And um, the day before Super Tuesday, which is when the most delegates will be chosen in early March, at that point, 70% of delegates will be chosen. There's a major criminal, uh, sorry, civil case that Donald Trump is going to have to deal with dealing with um, electoral fraud allegations. So uh, that will give us a good read on just uh, what impact these civil cases are going to have on his candidacy. Okay. Well, uh, that is your the takeaway here is we have never seen this before. And uh, I, I appreciate you coming on and being so clear about it. It's, it's very helpful. Professor of political science at Middlebury College, Matthew Dickinson. Thank you, as always, for coming on the show. Kevin, my pleasure. I'd love to do it again. Okay. Uh, okay, Matthew Dickinson, that, he, he was very clearly spoken there, and I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that he did it because that's what we're looking at is a, an unpopular Democratic incumbent president uh, facing off against Donald Trump, who, uh, whether you believe his stuff or not, uh, we very well could have uh, a, a new president uh, under criminal indictment, uh, even convicted. And uh, I, we've never seen that before. Well, that's our show for today. My thanks to our guests, Matthew Dickinson, Ken Libertalk, Leslie Preston, and Betsy Bishop. Be sure to follow all of them online, read and buy their stuff, patronize them so they'll be around in the future when we need them. Remember to join me Friday for more guests and more subjects uh, that will challenge us and make us smarter. That list includes Molly Gray, the former lieutenant governor and now the executive director of the Vermont Afghan Alliance. We're going to learn about uh, the Afghans who are uh, the new Vermonters coming and how they are getting housing and education and other services. You can always hit me up on Twitter or email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. I love your comments. I respond to every email that I get. 
Our goal is always to illuminate and inform and have some fun along the way. Remember, you can stream the show live or listen later as a podcast at WDEVradio.com. That means anytime, anywhere, you can listen to the show and, of course, re-listen because I know how scintillating it was. You can find me at KevinKEllis.com. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter and podcast called Conflict of Interest. I've taken a little break from both of those, but I'll be back to it soon. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by Brent Curtis, Danny McGivergan, Lee Cattell, Greg Titus, and all the folks at WDEV. My thanks also to the team at KWMR, Community Radio and Point Ray Station, California. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis. And we'll see you right back here Friday for more discussion of politics and culture in Vermont and beyond. Wherever you are, join us right here at Vermont Viewpoint.